Yeah, what a great song and a really cool video uh, one of our young men, Austin Suggs, put together. So we're in the second message of the series, Rise Above It. And uh, if you read the last book of the Bible, just curious, how many of you ever read uh, the last book of the Bible? Or some of it at least, okay. And can somebody tell me what that last book is called? The book of? Revelation. No S. <laughs> right, right, Revelation. How many have ever heard people say the book of Revelations? Uh, yeah, it, it, but it's Revelation, book of Revelation. Uh, in the book of Revelation, particularly in the first three chapters, you have a term that's used quite a few times of ordinary followers of Christ that are living above the circumstances of the day, and they're called the overcomers. If you've made that decision to put your trust in Christ, your creator, and follow him, then God will empower you, empower me to be overcomers. Doesn't matter what our circumstances may be. We should always be those that rise above what is the, the norm and what might be totally acceptable on a societal level. Change subjects a little bit. Um, it's okay, don't feel guilty about this, but, but how many, you, you at least peeked in on the big wedding last Saturday. Just curious. How, how many? Go, go ahead. Own up to it. Yeah, it's okay. Picture of them here. Uh, beautiful, really attractive couple. <laughs> oh, you didn't mean them. You meant, you meant the, the, these. Oh, okay. Well, them too. There were two billion people. That, not the, the Uniontown wedding, but two billion people that at least looked at this wedding. And... It's, it's okay, it's fun, we, we enjoy these things, but have you ever really thought it through? I mean, how come no one, except for probably a handful of people, knew about the Union Bridge wedding of Kristen and Matthew, whose last names I do not know, uh, and two billion people spent some time to, you know, see Harry and Megan and all that kind of, I mean, what, what is it? Why, it, it? Is the reason that two billion people looked at that wedding, is the reason is, is because they are just so much more important than you or I or anybody else, that that's the truth. They're just more important. They're more valuable. Um, why do we do this? What is it that draws us? And again, I'm trying to guilt trip you or anything like that. They had more advertisement. Do you think if we advertised you that the two billion people would line up to watch you? <laughs> Not to be disagreeable, I don't think so. <laughs> or me, or me, okay? I mean, let, let, let's think about it. Okay, so, so Harry, what, what has Harry got going for him? I mean, he's, he's got some royal blood, whatever that is. I mean, it's an accidental occurrence. You know, you get some royal blood and that makes you important. Uh, Megan. She's done some TV and a few small movie things, and she's not bad looking, and therefore that makes her way more important than any of you sitting in this room, right? You say, of course that's not right, but that's the way we treat them. You see, I want you to think about something. Why is it, why is it, where do we get these, these trends, these habits, the, these things that might be innocent and playful, but, but why do we treat certain people like they're so different, so much better than you or I or ordinary people. And, and I'm just curious, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of you in this room have at times struggled with your sense of, of uh, security and significance. You at times feel, you know, you're maybe not, you know, as worth as much as other people. You struggle with self-esteem issues. We hear it pretty commonly today. I wonder why that might be that it's so prevalent today and didn't seem to be such a big problem in the years gone by. 
there's a, uh, a guy named Neil Gabler. He's a social critic and a movie critic. And he writes about the amazing explosion of People Magazine. And I'm not going to ask you if you read People Magazine, but, you know, you find People Magazine all over the places in offices and things like that. But here's what he says. In his book, Life, the movie culture critic Neil Gabler claims that People Magazine has become the archetypical magazine of our times. He goes on. Within 10 months of its launch on March 4th, 1974, the magazine had a circulation of 1.25 million. 10 months, it exploded to that level. People editor Richard Stolley even devised a set of rules for a successful cover. Young is better than what? <laughs> Pretty is better than what? <laughs> Richer is better than? TV is better than? This is that interactive. You like it? It's like the old church. You know, I say a line, you say a line. <laughs> Movies are better than sports. I'll take it from here. Anything is better than politics. <laughs> and nothing is better than a celebrity who has just died. I'd have to think about the meaning of that. <laughs> it was a bracing description of not only what sold magazines, but of what values the media now sold the country, they're, they're selling us values. They're, they're shaping our thoughts, our opinions. They're, they're shaping our view of our self and our worth without us even knowing it. They're causing us to compare ourselves to something. And if you think about it, we have all these comparisons pushed in our face all the time. You know, the people in the TV commercials, the TV shows, the movies, the celebrities, the movies, the shakers, they're, they're either rich or powerful or both, or they're very attractive physically, or they're very talented, or they're very intelligent. And so these are held up as the standards of what makes a human being important. And if you happen to be pretty ordinary, like I myself find myself to be, <laughs> you don't match up so hot. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that you are not as valuable as a human being? And yet you know inside of you, you know your feelings, your hopes, your dreams matter as much as any other persons on this planet. So where, where does this system come from? And it's been all through history, the standards just changed, that, that forces us to treat some people as though they are very, very important and the vast majority of the common people are treated as though we frankly don't matter much at all. Where does this come from? Jesus, last night he was with his disciples. It's in John chapter 17. He's, he's letting them hear him speak with his Father in heaven. Uh, it's a complex thing. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're co-equal, co-eternal. One God eternally existed in three persons. You'll never figure it out, but it's what's clearly taught in Scripture. So Jesus is letting the disciples, his 12, minus Judas, his 11, hear him on the last night. He's already told them he's going to be crucified. He's told them he would rise again the third day. They're in utter confusion, though. They can't really believe this is going to happen. So he lets them in on this prayer. He wants them to hear it. Here's what he says. He's going to say it. <laughs> oh, you weren't going to really put, it, put the whole scripture. You were just going to put the page number. Ah, okay, well, let's do that then. Since he was gracious enough to do that, let's turn to page 1222. My mistake. I misunderstood it. In the first service, I just read it. And uh, that's what I'm going to do now. <laughs> but if you want to read along with me, since we've had such a participatory start, that's a hard word to say. I'm in John 17, 14. Remember, this is Jesus last night when he's with his disciples. 
He wants them to hear him speak to his father in heaven. And here it goes. He says, I have given them your word, speaking of the disciples, and the world has, what is the word? Hated, Hated them because they do not belong to the world. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's letting them hear him speak to his father and saying, these guys are not part of the world. Verse 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one, a personal entity we'll talk about later. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. And here's the, the last and key phrase we'll read. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. So Jesus says a number of things that sound kind of perplexing. He, first of all, he says to his disciples, he says, the world's going to hate you just like it hated me. And he says that I'm not asking the Father to take you out of the world, but just to protect you from the evil one, some kind of an evil entity. We, we know who that is. We'll talk later. But then he says... I don't want you guys to be just separated, not hide yourself away in a box underground from the world, from the culture, from society. Far be it, he says, just like the Father sent Jesus into the world to reveal to the world the truth about God, the truth about life, Jesus mixed it up. Jesus was comfortable amongst ordinary people. He was even bomb, um, blasted, rather, by his, his peers, his religious peers, because it said that he hung out with the sinful people. So far from Jesus saying that we are to stay separate from those that are not church folk, he says that we are to be sent. He is sending us into the world just like the Father sent him. We are to be salt and we're to be light. We're to penetrate. We're to get close to people. We're to mix it up with this imperfect society of ours full of imperfect people. So we are not to bury our heads in the sand and just try to stay separate and apart from everything in the world because you can't do it anyway. But he does give a warning. He says, the world hates you because you're not of the world. You're different. Now, it's the Apostle John. We're in the Gospel of John that I just read to you from. John, the youngest disciple of Jesus. Now, the Spirit of God stirs his heart many years later. He's an old, old man. He's the last living apostle. And then he writes these words. They'll appear, I promise. <laughs> Here's John, that same John. He says, don't fall in love with this corrupt world or worship the things it can offer. You don't tell somebody not to fall in love with something unless there's the vulnerability of falling in love with it. John's writing to fellow Christians and he's saying, man, the world is seductive. It's powerful. It's attractive. He's saying, don't fall in love with this corrupt world or worship the things it can offer. Those who love its corrupt ways don't have the Father's love living within them. He goes on. All the things the world can offer to you, the allure of pleasure, there's all kinds of pleasures that the world offers, the passion to have things, you know, newer, nicer, bigger, better, let's collect a whole bunch of things, let's get a bunch of things, let's see how much we can have. And thirdly, the pompous sense of superiority. I'm the best, I'm number one, look what I've achieved, look what I have, look who I am, look how many likes I have, you know, all these things. It says, these do not come from the Father. These are the rotten fruits of this world, he goes on. This corrupt world, it's already wasting away, as are its selfish desires. But the person really doing God's will, 
that person will never cease to be or live forever. Now, it's interesting he says this world is already wasting away. I just want to ask you a question, a personal question. If you could have had the best room on the Titanic, would you have taken the voyage? Can I just see your hands? Say, some people lived. You might have wanted to risk it, right? <laughs> Not everybody died. But you know the voyage doesn't end well, you know. So John's saying, listen, don't let the glitter, don't let the, the sophistication, don't let the seduction don't let it grab your heart. Don't let it get in your head. Don't let it get a hold of your affections. Don't let it start stealing your time and your talent and your treasure. Don't let it start stealing your energy because it's a shipwreck in the making. It can't go on. It has the seeds of self-destruction already built into it. So we're going to talk about rising above cultural pressure, and it's it's a difficult time to rise above cultural pressure. And again, I've said it at the beginning of the message, I'm not talking about just isolating ourselves and becoming weird and, you know, hiding ourselves in the ground somewhere, but, but not allowing the very powerful, sophisticated, uh, seductive pressure of our culture sweep us along with it, shape us, change us, change us inside without us even knowing what's taking place. So... Rising above cultural pressure. First of all, why, why should we care? Why should we want to? Why does this matter to us? Why should it matter to us? More important question. Paul writing to followers of Christ living in the city of Corinth. He says these words. He says, Satan, a real entity, a superior being, not a supreme being, but he's definitely superior to you or I. He's an extra dimensional being, a real entity with free will, and who is an enemy of God and an enemy of humanity because of being an enemy of God, Satan, who is the, what does it say he is? God of what? This world. That's, that's a powerful statement. It's saying he's running things. Later on in the book of Revelation, it says he's deceived the whole world. Satan why should we rise above the cultural pressure? Because he's the maker of the cultural pressure. Satan, who is the god of this world, he creates its systems, its philosophies, its religions, its ideologies, its trends, its fads, its values, its priorities. He's blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. In other words, when they hear the story of Christ, how God has revealed himself to be loving and forgiving and how he offers us forgiveness and eternal life to anyone that will turn to him in trust, he's demonstrated his sacrificial love by Christ going to the cross for us, that some people hear that message, and you know people like this, and I know people like this, and they just go, you know, I, man, I don't care about that stuff. That, that's, that's not my thing. I'm, I'm not, if you're religious, that's okay, but that's just not me. They hear the message and it doesn't move them. It doesn't matter to them. They, they find no value in it. And here's the apostle Paul saying the reason is, is because Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds so that they don't see anything worthy of consideration in the message of God's action and plan in Christ. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. They just shrug their shoulders and say, it doesn't matter to me. It's okay if it matters to you, but it doesn't matter to me. But this pulls back the curtains, and it says they're saying that because without them knowing it, 
cultural pressure has invaded them inside. It's made it inside the, the sanctuary of their soul, and it has changed them. And so things that they should care about, they no longer care about, and things they shouldn't care about, they care greatly about. And he says it can be deadly. It can ruin your eternal destiny. <coughs> There's a guy named Todd Gitlin. <coughs> He's a leading media expert, and he talks about the power of media in our day and uh, share a few words. Um, he says, the torrent of images, songs, and stories streaming has become our familiar world. This torrent determines what we see and what we don't, what we think about and what never enters our mind. The media we watch every day has been shaping us for years, whether we know it or not. It's shaping us. It's changing us. It's, it's, it's influencing us. It's pressing on us. What the media does is normalize things. If you see likable characters on TV having sex outside of marriage enough times, it becomes not only acceptable, but desirable. That's why Fred Fiedler, author of the most widely used college textbooks on mass media, writes, the media may constitute, and I want to change that word may, even though he said may, I'm just telling you it's the truth. It absolutely is. It constitutes the most powerful educational system ever known to man. I want you to think about something. Occasionally you'll hear me say this. They've done population estimates, and they estimate that approximately 105 billion people have ever lived and died on planet Earth. Of the 105 billion people that have ever lived and died on planet Earth, we represent probably, you know, about 97 or 98 percent of the people that have ever lived and died. They never experienced our life, our world at all. We're in an elite 3, 4 percent. What do I mean is this. We have electricity. We have technology. If you want to get an idea across to a million people, you can do it very easily. Throughout the rest of human history, if someone wanted to teach an idea, if someone wanted to persuade somebody of a point of view, they literally had to get close enough that the person could hear their voice. They either had to shout it in a theater or a stadium that was acoustically, you know, advantageous, or they had to come face to face. It was extremely hard to get your message to affect a thousand people, ten thousand, a million people throughout most of human history. But you know, and I know, that's not true today. We're, we're so used to communications that affects millions, billions of people all at once, instantly, quickly. You can do it. I can do it. Even people like us, we can do it. And so we are living at a very, very unusual time in human history where the media has become this, this extraordinarily powerful educational system and it brings cultural pressure on us around the clock, 24-7. We cannot escape it. I'm not advocating escape it. I'm not saying throw away all your devices. No, no, no. Because Jesus said that just as he was sent into the world, we're sent into the world. But I am saying be careful because we are living at a period of time that is different than anything that all the rest of human beings have ever experienced. Now, the scripture says that this is, this is a unique period of time because we're living just prior to the return of Jesus Christ and his establishing his kingdom in its fullness. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am not the slightest bit afraid of looking like a fanatic. Based on 40 or more years of study of scripture and the prof prophecies of scripture in particular, it is highly likely you are actually going to live to see the second coming of Christ. Because we were born into this technological society, we think it's normal. It's not normal. 
And our minds, our minds are being influenced. Cultural pressure is exerted on us almost constantly. And there is no way really to escape from it. We have to be able to see it for what it is in order to escape its pressure. Uh, there's no way you can just pull back from it. So there's a, there's a little slide that I put together because sometimes when you hear things, you can't, you can't, you can't really put it together. Well, what's so bad about the world? Uh, James, you know, Jesus' half-brother, he says some pretty harsh things about the world. And, um, you know, it's almost offensive. He's writing to fellow Christians, fellow followers of Christ. He says, you unfaithful people, what did they do? Um, don't you know that love for this, what does it say? Evil world is hatred towards God. That's a little harsh, James. Why, why are you so in our face? Love for this world is hatred towards God. Whoever wants to be a friend of this world is a what? I mean, this is God's inspired word. It's either true or it's not. But you and I have a hard time figuring out. It's like, I don't, I don't get that. Most people are not that bad. I don't understand this. Why, why, why is it so extreme? Well, I put together a slide for you that I hope will make this a little easier for you to see what the danger really is. So what we're going to call this, the world, we're going to call it the kingdom of man. It's a man-centered view of life. Human beings are the supreme being. Everything is about us. It starts from us. Contrast that with the kingdom of God. It's a God-centered kingdom. Everything starts with God, the creator. Let's go on. In the kingdom of man, man's desires reign supreme. It's whatever you want, when you want it, how you want it. Hey, man, nobody should deny you what you want. Just follow your dreams. Get what you want. But in the kingdom of God, it's all about God's design. How did he design humanity to live? How did he design uh, beings with free will to live? goes on. Immediate gratification is the goal in the kingdom of man. I need to get my desires gratified. I want it now. I want to get it now. That's the goal. But in the kingdom of God, it's ultimate good is the goal. It's not gratifying my immediate desires, but it's what is good. I want to see good become pervasive in me and in all those around me. We could go on. The kingdom of man, it's innately destructive it, it, it can't help but to be you have people's desires clashing with one another hence we have all kinds of crime we have all kinds of heartbreak we have all kinds of war in the kingdom of God though when God when we live according to the way he tells us to live it's developmental we grow we develop we become Christ-like people there's no collisions it goes on the kingdom of man is fatalistically driven. Because we're time-bound, sense-governed, we don't know how long we're going to live, we're driven by fear. So we've got to get all we can while we can. We live in a desperation. But the kingdom of God, we can live optimistically. I'm an eternal entity. God's given me eternal life. He's forgiven my sins. I don't need a bucket list. I said that a week ago. I can live patiently and calmly awaiting the certainty of his kingdom and its coming. If we could go on. The kingdom of man, it's temporal it's a temporal perspective it's time bound like I said the kingdom of God I'm looking at life from an eternal perspective if I could go on to the next the kingdom of man has changing values what's important in one generation won't be important in another generation what's important in one part of the world even may not be important in another part of the world changing values you never know what's important in the kingdom of God the values are unchanging goodness is always right being kind is always right being generous being faithful being honest he's always right there's consistency if we could go to the next. The kingdom of man, arbitrary morals. 
You know, you, you can go from generation to generation, country to country, and the morals are going to be different. We see the morals today changing radically right before our eyes in just the past few years. But in the kingdom of God, the morals are always appropriate. They're always consistent. They're always appropriate to, to free willed beings living in loving, righteous relationships and in harmony with one another. The kingdom of man ultimately always ends in disillusionment. You see, we, we go along through life kind of blissfully ignorant until it gets too late, and then we realize when all is said and done, I never really got all that I wanted to get out of life. It ends badly. It ends in disillusionment. The kingdom of God ends in fulfillment. I'm growing until my last breath. I'm becoming more like Christ. I can look back on my life and know that I have been someone that blessed others every, every year, every decade of my life. It ends in fulfillment. So this gives you kind of an ongoing contrast of these two and why the scripture gives such stark uh, warnings about being uh, influenced by the culture of our day. And the Apostle Paul, he, uh, he gives a good, a good basic balancing uh, approach to this. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said, those who use the things of the world should not become what? Attached to them. So it's not saying that we can't enjoy the technology, enjoy the things that are there, but don't let those things get into your heart. Hold on to them loosely. I mean, frankly, because we are living at the end of the age, the time that Christ is going to return, you have to be prepared to hold on to the lifestyle you have very loosely because things are going to change. It's going to get worse before it gets better, according to what Scripture clearly lays out. So let's not become dependent on these things. Enjoy them, use them, but don't come attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon what? And you're going to live to see it, in my opinion. You're, you're going to live to see this culture, this world, this society, with all of its sophistication, with all of its political systems, with all of its national systems, all of its ideology, all of its religion, you're going to live, in my opinion, you're going to live to see it collapse. Let me go further. You're going to live to see technology collapse. You're going to live, in my opinion, to see large parts of humanity without electricity. I mean parts of humanity that have been used to electricity all their lives without it because it's going to get worse before it gets better, according to what the Bible clearly, clearly teaches. So it's so important that we don't become culturally addicted and dependent upon these things that are not ultimately going to last. Suppose I could do you a deal. I mean, let's just suppose. How many of you guys, if I said, man, I can, I can, I can make you billions. I can, I, can, I can get you a whole city, all the buildings in the city, all the factories in the city, you know, all the utilities in the city, worth billions and billions of dollars. I can give you a city. If you can, if you can raise by the end of this week for me 500 bucks. How many of you think you could raise 500 bucks? Can you see? Okay. How about, how about, how about let's try it. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a city in a week from now. <laughs> but here's the city. Now, City's worth billions and billions of dollars. You may think that's a good deal, but that would not be a good deal. You know why it wouldn't be a good deal for you and you would turn it down if you knew? Do you know what city that is? Some of you know already. Chernobyl. Since 1985, it's been radioactive. You can't even live there. The dust will kill you. So the scripture says our world with all of its seductive tapestry, it, it's kind of like Chernobyl and so we have to look at it and see it for what it is. It doesn't mean that we run and live under the ground or anything like that. Jesus says, go into the world just like I was sent into the world. So 
Maybe we have a clear idea now of why we need to rise above it, but how do, how do we do this? How do we rise above it? It's, it's got us. We're immersed in it. It's, we're all, it's all around us. It speaks to us nonstop. We can't just be weirdos. So how then should we live? Well, Paul again, the apostle, led by the Spirit of God, writing to people living in Rome that were followers of Christ, he said these words, Stop imitating the ideals. Stopped imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. But be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. In other words, he says the key to this thing is let the Spirit of God take the Word of God, let it saturate you inside so that you are now looking at life through God's eternal perspective, and so you have power and pressure inside that is equal to the pressure from culture on the outside so that it cannot mold you or shape you. You won't embrace its ideals. You won't embrace its opinions. You see them for what they are. So, so practically speaking, what, what does that mean? You know, there were a group of people uh, back in the 1700s called the, the Amish. How many have ever visited, you know, going up to Pennsylvania and visited Amish country? So, so is, that, is that the ideal? Because that's their thing. See, they, they thought the way you get away from being part of the world is you dress down. You know, man, just, just dress down and, and you don't use too much electricity. Some of them don't use any electricity. So, I mean, is this, is this the goal like this? Is it? Man, it's a handsome guy. Who is that? I mean, some Amish look different, but that guy reminds me of someone. Uh, yeah, oh, oh, that would be me without a mustache. <laughs> not in such great shape, though. But, but no, that's not it. We're not to just do some weird things on the outside. The Amish, almost, they meant well, but it doesn't work. It's got to, it's got to be a transformation that occurs on the inside. It's kind of like the Matrix if you saw the movie. You need to see the Matrix to understand how to resist it. If you don't see it, you can't see through it, and you're going to be affected by it. So, in the New Testament book of Colossians, and Thomas shared this with you guys last week, this verse, the Apostle Paul again said this. He says, okay, here, here's the key. Keep thinking. Don't, don't just think about it once in a while. He says, you've got to do this again and again and again. You've got to keep thinking. He says, keep thinking about things above, where Christ is ruling and reigning, where God's will is done all the time, where everybody's loved, everybody's respected, everybody's healthy and safe and sound. It's going to come. The kingdom's going to come, and God's will is going to be done on this earth as in heaven. You need to start thinking about it now. You need to think about it tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next decade. Keep thinking about things above Jesus is going to rule ultimately, not things on where. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be ignorant about earthly events. It's not, it's not advocating that, but it's saying our point of view that's going to govern us inside should come from what we know is eternally true from heaven. And he gets, uh, Paul adds to the reasoning for that in the book of Philippians. He says this, he says, our citizenship is where? A real dimension, real place. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's to be what colors our perspective, and if we do this on a consistent basis, it kind of provides an inner armor, so to speak. I'm going to close with something that, that I found fascinating. I hope you do as well. How many are familiar with uh, the Mariana Trench? Can I just see your hands, Mariana Trench? Now, for some of you, it's the music group, but I'm not talking about the music group, the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench is the deepest part uh, of the earth. It, it's where the ocean, it's by Guam, by the island Guam, and the ocean is seven miles deep there. Uh, to give you an idea of, of how vast it is, 
If you could turn Mount Everest upside down, you could see it still wouldn't reach the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It's about seven miles deep, all right? When you get into water, uh, you start encountering, as a human being, you start encountering pressure. And, and most divers recommend don't go below like 130 feet. There have been some people that dive up to 400 feet. There's even one man that supposedly did a free dive for 1,000 feet. But it's extremely dangerous. It, it, the pressure usually kills you. But there's a guy named James Cameron, a movie producer, Canadian movie producer. Some of you are familiar with him, I'm sure. And did you know that, that he set the record by being the first human being to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench? Just curious, how, how many knew that? In 2012, March 26th of 2012, he got into this very specially designed vehicle. It had, you know, two and a half inch thick steel walls, seven inch, seven inch walls altogether, uh, highly you know, technologically, you know, uh, filled with all kinds of gadgets and protective things, kept the pressure inside consistent. He went down there by himself all the way to the bottom. By the way, five miles down, they found fish that could endure that pressure. But I want to get to the pressure. So, so the pressure at the bottom of the Mariana Trench where James Cameron was, I'm going to read it to you in a way that is not likely going to move you too much or make sense because it didn't make sense to me. When you get seven miles down in the ocean where James Cameron was, you experience eight tons per square inch of pressure. Now, if you're like me, you're like, I bet you that's a lot, but I don't really know what that means. All right, here's what it means. It would be like having 50 jumbo jets. How many have ever seen a jumbo jet? First service, there were some that had not seen one. You're not much better. You're not sure either. You've seen them, trust me. It's just a big jet, okay? 50 jumbo jets piled on top of you. That's how much pressure it is seven miles down deep in the water. But James Cameron was totally safe because he was in an environment where the pressure inside was kept safe. The inside was sufficient to deter the crushing pressure of the outside. That's what scripture says you and I need. We don't run from this world. We don't hide from the culture. We learn the culture. We invade the culture. We seek to bring people out of the culture into God's light, but we do not let it get inside of us. Let me ask you another question. Maybe this will help. Go back to Mariana Trench. There's two different kinds of people I've learned. There's some people that float in water, and there's some people that just sink like a doggone rock. I'm one of those sink like a rock. I mean, if I'm not really going at it, I'm sinking. I mean, I've seen floaty people, though. They just roll over on their back, and they can float, whether it's a three foot of water in a pool or, or an ocean deep. How many of you, be honest, you're a floaty person. Can I see your hands? Okay. You would laugh at me because I sink like a rock. I cannot float. I have to move or I, or I just drown. Well, you floaty people, <laughs> you could go to the Mariana Trench, seven miles deep, and you could just be floaty all you want. You would not be in any danger. That water would not endanger you at all. Even though it's seven miles deep, it wouldn't matter to you whether it's seven miles or three feet or seven feet, as long as that is, as long as the water never got inside. Because if the water from the outside gets on the inside, it only takes two ounces of water to drown you and I. It's all about on what gets inside. 
If the pressure inside that's built up in us by God's will and God's word and our minds being stayed on the kingdom that's going to come, if that pressure stays fresh and strong inside, I don't care how strong the cultural pressure is, we'll see it for what it is, we'll walk through it, we'll embrace it, we'll use it for God's glory and the good of others, and we will not be crushed by it, molded by it, shaped by it, influenced by it. We will be salt, we will be light, we will rise above it, we will be more than overcomers. If the pressure inside is greater than the pressure outside. Scripture says it like this in 1 John. It says, little children, believers, dear ones, you're of God and you belong to him and have already overcome them, the agents of the Antichrist. Because he who is in you is greater than he, Satan, who is in the world of sinful mankind. John goes on. He says, for everyone born of God, and when you put your faith in Christ, you're birthed into the family of God. Everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing, persistent faith in, you tell me, Jesus, Jesus the Son of God. Faith in a living Savior who is our shepherd, and we are his sheep and his followers. So, we're not going to escape the pressure. The pressure, in fact, is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. You know and I know privacy is a thing of the past. You know and I know the world is shrinking together. You know and I know soon all currency, all, all cash money will be gone. Everything will be controlled by an electric drawing right system. And we will be so controlled or easily controlled that unless you have Christ alive in power strengthening you inwardly the pressure of culture from the outside will squeeze you and squeeze me to sell our soul for the next meal we eat that's what the book of Revelation chapter 13 ultimately teaches but you won't be those people if you understand now that you're living at a, at a time when you must understand you must see the matrix you must see the world for what it is and determine you will influence it it will not influence you so maybe for all of us we can do this we can just take an assessment we can get along with God we can look at ourselves objectively look at the way we're spending our time and our talents and our, and our treasure the way we're investing our energy what has a hold of our affections and say God search me out let, let me see if if the culture has penetrated some on me and it's starting to seduce me without me knowing it and if so God I want you to help me to see it so that I can break free from it Maybe others of us, we have already been nullified. We've been so intimidated by the cultural pressure that we are silent Christians. That's an awful thing. We, we become those people that say, oh, you don't talk about religion. Well, no, don't talk about religion, but you do talk about the truth. Christ is the truth, and he's the, the revelation of reality about life and eternity and all things. And we are called by him to be sent into the world as the Father sent him. We are called to share with others the truth about God and the truth about life. We are to invest in people's lives. We are to invite them into his church. We are to share our stories with them and tell them the sacrificial love of God as it's been revealed in Christ. You are ordained. You are commissioned for that. You are empowered to do that if you're a real Christ follower. And some of us, this culture has silenced us. 
We're intimidated. We're scared. We're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of being made fun of. We're afraid of losing jobs or, or promotions or whatever it might be. And so maybe now is the time we've got to say, wow, man, Lord, I'm sorry. I've already let this culture work me over, but today it stops. Today I create a strategy. Today I make some decisions on how I'm going to be a servant, a spokesman, an ambassador, a witness for you. And you start looking at your circle of influence and you start praying and you start figuring out what your first steps are. And then there might be some, this is your big awakening. You've been immersed in this culture that's the Titanic going down. And this is your grand opportunity to get on the rescue boat, which is a person called Jesus, the creator of this universe. If you'll put your trust in him today, become his follower. He welcomes you with open arms, promising you eternal life, forgiveness of all your sins, and his loving, faithful leadership throughout the rest of your life. So maybe today, that's your big decision. Let's pray. Father, you see us in our condition. We have a hard time seeing where we're at. Bring your light upon us that in your light we might see the truth and we might be those that are more than overcomers of this present age for the sake of your name and for the good of so many others. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.